Tony Duchesne here with you and another episode of Drinks with Tony. I've been holding this interview until her book is published, which is coming out on April 20th on 420. Why? Because the book's called Home Baked, My Mom, Marijuana, and the Stoning of San Francisco. Alia Voltz and I taped this interview at Amsterdam Cafe in San Francisco on Geary Street before everything was shut down. In other news, here at the Duchesne Studio Bunker, slightly east of Hollywood, we're going to start rolling out a show called Turn It Up, and that's available on YouTube, and it'll feature shorter author interviews, more author interviews, well, shorter in length, not shorter in height, but uh, also music segments uh, with uh, for performers essentially performing from their room. The show is called Turn It Up, so look for it next week. And now that you have context to the interview, now that you have anticipation, and now you have a show. Hi, this is Alia Voltz, and you are listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Alia Voltz. She's the author of Home Baked, My Mom, Marijuana, and the Stoning of San Francisco. Alia, hi. Hi. Hi, Tony. I'm so happy to have you here as for your first memoir coming out. I've been so excited about this for years. When did, when was this, when did this idea come up first? Oh my God. It's, it's almost painful. It was so long ago. I think I first started interviewing for this book in about 2006 which makes it 13 years in the making. Um, and, and just to cut, when you say interviewing, you did have to do a lot of research on this book. So it's a bit of, it's more of a biography than a memoir, even though you're really involved. Yes. Yeah, it's very research driven. It's about my family um, and my family's role at the dawn of the medical marijuana movement. Uh, but I'm born about halfway through the book. And then for the next quarter of the book, I'm an infant and a toddler, so I don't exactly have strong opinions about what's happening, um, at least not that I remember, although I'm sure I threw a lot of tantrums at the time. Uh, So it is mostly research-driven and interview-driven. How was that emotionally diving into essentially your family ancestry? I mean, the title sounds like all good, and this is going to be a lot of fun, and it is a lot of fun reading it, but it must there must have been points where it was just kind of excruciating to really kind of go through this, or, or am I just thinking about what would happen if I, inter- if I ever did my family tree? <laughs> um, from the familial point of view, it was, actually, uh, it was actually really interesting for me, and it was uh, surprisingly good for my family, uh, which was not what I expected. I, most memoirists... No, it's almost a truism in writing that you write about your family at the risk of losing your family. Because to be honest on the page, you have to expose yourself and everybody else, including all of the ugly bits. And not everyone is going to be on board with that generally. And so um, there were a lot of difficult periods to talk about in my parents' relationship. Um, Old old fights, old he said, she said arguments that I was really tentative about digging into. Um, And I I would say that slowed me down on the book quite a bit because I I, I mostly, I I was afraid to uh, get into it with my dad who who was going through a lot of confusion and a lot of difficulty at that time. But um, 
once we finally, once I finally started getting into it with him and he saw that I was really interested in finding out how he thought and felt uh, at the time and really hearing his side of the story, um, he became interested in the research as well. And it turned out that he, he was ready to be honest and open and um, uh, talk about it without trying to control the narrative. Um, and so through the process of working on this book, we actually became a lot closer. It really could have went the other way. Isn't it weird how, vo- how like volatile it is where it could go one way or the other, and it's so great that the situation went the, the good way? Right, right. I mean, you... It, it, with my dad, there was sort of a um, there was a progression. I wrote an essay about him first that was not uh, the kindest of essays. It was uh, on the scathing side. And, and, and when was that? And did he have a reaction to that? Yeah, uh, this was in 2014. And um, I wrote it with no intention of him reading it. It was it was published in Tin House, which is a very good magazine, but not one that my dad was likely to read. It's a print only literary journal. But then it got picked up and reprinted by the Utney Reader, which is a new age hippie magazine with a much wider uh, readership, including within my father's social circle. So I had to tell him about it and I had to send him the essay. And uh, I had no intention of doing that. I had no intention of him reading it. Oh, my God. What was it like when you heard the news that it was in Utney and then you realized, oh, crap, I need to... I need to get in touch with my dad and do some damage control. Yeah, it was a little precarious. Um, our, uh, we had a lot of estrangement going into it and had just started developing a relationship more as friends than as parent and child, which wasn't working for us and hadn't worked for us for many years. We were beginning to become friends, and I was a- afraid of losing that. I thought that I might. Um, and so... There was no other way to approach it besides simply give him the essay and kind of hope for the best. And um, I remember the email that he wrote back to me started with, um, well, I did it. I read the expose. It was a bit like getting my chest ripped open in places. (laughs) And I thought, okay, wow, here we go. But... um, it, it, it was interesting because although he disagreed with a lot of what I said uh, in the essay, he ended it by saying that he was moved that I cared enough to explore my feelings around our history and, um, and that he liked the writing, which surprised me. And that was kind of the beginning of feeling like he would be an ally in, in my artistic process, he's an artic- artist himself. Yeah. And so we were able to connect through art in a way that we hadn't been able to connect by coming at our issues directly. So it was interesting. Um, and it, it actually, we've actually become a lot closer. So essentially, if this was the Oprah show, they would, we would tell everybody, write a biography about your family, do some skating essays, Come closer with your parents. Well, Oprah, I'm not sure if I would rec- recommend it to everyone. 
Unless you've got a, unless there's a car in in it or a bra fitting. (laughs) Who needs a car? No, what does she say? Who? You want a car? You want a car? (laughs) I love that clip so much. Who needs Who needs some deep family therapy? You need some family therapy. I need some family therapy. No, but um, no, it really could have gone either way, and and it does for a lot of people. I I got fortunate, and um, I felt that it was very brave on the part of my father, and and so it really it has really done us a lot of good. And what's interesting is that I feel like like pe- parents of our generation, you know, the, our parents and their generation, they really didn't. They, they may have explored drugs. They did a lot of things like that. Well, they may have. <laughs> yeah. Well, when I say may have, my parents were pretty straight uh, compared to yours. But they also didn't talk about their feelings, I don't think, as much as our generation does. There, There's kind of a stop to that, I've found. I don't know about your on your end. That's not my family. Oh, okay. Yeah, my my family talks about their feelings. Really? Oh yes. Oh, okay. oh yes. Um, at least my my parents. Um, very very out there, swinging hippies um, into all the exploring all the new uh, all the new philosophies, all the new types of therapy. Um, my dad was really into like Native American style vision quests um, to try and work out his shit. Some, sometimes I think it, it, sometimes I think he came back weirder. I don't know. Um, and maybe less in touch or sometimes perhaps it helped him on his way. It, it, there's no, there's no direct answer or an easy answer to how to um, learn to sit in our own skin. Um, in, in the strongest and, and, and most comfortable way. Yeah. And um, it takes some people longer than others to figure out how to feel confident and comfortable with themselves and to treat others kindly. Yeah. It's cool that it must be, see, I don't have this experience to have parents that are artists. Um, and here you are a writer. And, you, and you, well, you've been doing a lot of translating, a lot of other things too, and essays. When this is, I mean, this is kind of, this is the, the first, like, this is, this is the, I'm just, I'm so stoked. I'm gushing <laughs> over here. Uh, if the audience doesn't know, we're also friends. So I'm just, I've been like, kind of, watch, I've just been kind of watching this process and it's, and here it is. It's, it's here. Yeah. Whew, that's all I got to say. Thank you, Tom. No, it's, um, it's, it's been a long time coming. And um, like I said, I started this back in, 2006 or 7 I started doing the interviews for it but I did not know how to tell the story yeah. in the most engaging way I didn't know shit about writing nonfic. can I swear I can swear right you just did. this is a cussing podcast nice. but for you it is okay good um, <laughs> but I, I didn't I didn't know nonfiction. I didn't I hadn't done my my wood shedding I had you know I, I just didn't know how to do it um, so I initially did it as an oral history um, yeah which was kind of awful when I look at it now, um, but I had a lot, it was good in the sense that I recorded a lot of interviews and some of the interviews I recorded were with people like, like Dennis Perone who passed away by the time the second revival of the book really got going and he was still alive, but he wasn't well. Um, and, uh, so it went through a few different stages. The oral history, uh, was shopped in 2009 and, and I actually, I had a I had a good agent, um, fancy agent, uh, and every expectation that it would sell, and it didn't sell, which was devastating to me at the time. So can I, can I just, uh, when you say oral history, was it like a kind of 
this American Life audio documentary type thing, or what was what oh. was? Um, not well. I recorded things, but it was on the page. Oh, okay, okay. So basically, I had long form interviews. I edited myself out of it, so the questions were mostly edited out, and it was people telling stories because I was really kind of in love with storytelling and. Yeah. I felt like people could narrate their lives better than I could narrate it for them, yeah. which um, is is partly kind of kind of sweet and lovely, but uh, also shows just how little I trusted my own voice yeah. as a nonfiction writer. Um, but but at the same time, you did have an agent out of it, and they were shopping it. Yeah, uh, I mean, he thought he was going to sell it, uh, but it it didn't sell, and I. I was crushed at the time. I was young, and I, he, I had been approached by this agent, so everything it seemed like everything was falling into my lap, and I wasn't right. going to have to put in my dues uh, like most writers that I, you know, I could just kind of sail into into the publishing world, which did not happen. Um, so the book went into the boneyard, and I couldn't look at it. I was just, I was devastated. Uh, so because you lose, you lose your agent. Yeah. You, 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 no one's buying it. And it just, so there's, and so at that point, how do you, do you start working on something else and just try to really kind of get it out of your mind? Yeah. I mean, the other way to do things uh, would have been to self-publish or go to a small, go to a small house. I probably could have sold it to a small house for, for not very much money. And, um, but I was so disappointed. I just didn't want to think about the project anymore. And I didn't want to. I felt like I was beating, beating myself, like throwing myself against a wall that wasn't going to break. So, uh, so, so why, so why did you choose not to self-publish or not go to a smaller house? Was there actually a choice, or was it just kind of devastating enough to just keep this project out of your head? Yeah, I was just disappointed. Yeah, um, and I needed to not think about it. Uh, you know, after I after I had my crying jag yeah. and and watched a bunch of cartoons and yeah. you know. Um, did all of the all of the soothing drugs and way too much drinking. Yeah. I put the book away and um, and thought, you know, I'll come back to you someday. I always thought, I know this is a good story. Uh-huh. I know people need to hear this story and learn about this this piece of history. But um, I, I just I couldn't. What I was trying wasn't working, and I just couldn't do it. Yeah. So. I wrote um, a mediocre novel. It's like a cowboy. We- it's a cowboy noir novel, um, which was about as different from this as I possibly could have gone. Um, can we, now, can we just uh, just a segue to the, the cowboy noir? You're also yeah. you're, you are, you do work with horses. Yeah. What do they call it? Equesta- an equestrian. Yeah, you work with horses, so that would be kind of a you're you're a cowgirl in San Francisco. Sure, and it and it and it was based on um, on there's this so there's this weird little enclave of cowboys on the outskirts of San Francisco, and they're still there. Uh, there's a horse, like a really ramshackle, collapsing horse rental stables out on Skyline Boulevard, okay. on the on the border of Daly City. Wow. Um, and it's real, real funky. And I had I had a horse there yeah. when I was a kid. So the, the characters in this story were based on people that I knew when I was a kid, 
um, and who were just very, it's just a weird group of people. They're, they're misfits. Um, they've got, they got problems. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of racism and sexism and they don't, they don't kind of don't belong here in a way. Yeah. And at the same time, there's, there's something that I thought was really magically wild west about that. Um, about being a cowboy uh-huh. in San Francisco yeah. and like going to, you know, going to Westlake uh-huh. and, you know, going to, going to school in Daly City. And this is in the early 90s. And the, the vibe then and the vibe at the, these schools, like there would, there would be like gang activity. And then there was, this was like everybody was in 49ers. And it was like, the vibe out there was really different. Yeah. And then there's these hicks. Yeah. And I just thought, well, that, you know, that, as that takes a certain kind of balls that's really sort of exciting sort of it is sort of western yeah, yeah. right so i was trying to write a contemporary western it came out okay it's got redeeming qualities but that's in the boneyard right but uh, but you also but at the same time you i mean i feel like in order to learn how to write a novel you just write a novel so what did, was did writing that novel did that kind of help you come back to the book and kind of cr- craft or, or am I just jumping ahead way too far? I suppose um, yeah. you learn from every every um, failure as a writer. I think, yeah. and I don't know that it was a failure. There, as I say, there it has it has redeeming qualities. But um, what's funny is I worked on it for four years, got it to a certain point, and just as I was ready to start shopping it, I decided I don't want it. I don't want to with this one, wow. and I never. I sent it to maybe ten agents. I ne- I didn't do the the work to sell it. Um, I thought this isn't the writer I want to be. Yeah. Is is writing like these? It's really dark. Yeah. It's really violent. Yeah. Um, I like that, but um, I just thought I thought that wasn't how I wanted to start things off. Maybe I'll come back to it someday. Cormac McCarthy of San Francisco. Totally, totally. So hoof hoof is in the boneyard. Um, Hoof is in the boneyard. That, is, that sounds like that sounds like a, a strip joint that I used to go to. In a <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, but I don't know. I think like uh, sometimes I, I think of a book being in the boneyard, or, or it can even be an essay, and they're kind of like rotting and festering, yeah. and and you know, there's all the worms and creepy collies and and whatnot, but. You can also exhume these corpses, and you can make Franken books out of them, and that's what Home Baked, um, which, in a much happier evolution of that story, um, landed really well with a good publisher, and um, and is now something that I'm I'm proud of and excited to get out there. But I had to I had to exhume the corpse. I took it apart. I kept some some bits and pieces throughout a lot. Um, and and started over from the beginning, um, and so who knows? Hoof Hoof may have its day. <laughs> well, I know you've been working your ass off on um, Home Baked. It's uh, it's you know it's it's it, it just it always I don't I don't know because you did get the book contract. Uh, how far along were you when you got the sale? Was it was it like a proposal or how how did that work out? Yeah, I did sell it on proposal. Um, and we have to remind the listeners, you also worked probably three years on this in an earlier rendition, right, B- before we even got here? Yeah, so 2000, I started around 2006 or 2007, um, very 
tentatively just by interviewing um, people for it and then shopped it in 2009 and at that point I had maybe what I thought was half the book Um, it turned out to be much less than half the book when I rewrote it but um, uh, I thought it was half the book and then put it down for some several years I picked it up again late in 2016 and shopped it uh, was it 2017? 2018. Um, yeah, but it, it was really, um, by the time I came back to it, I was able to find, find the voice a lot e- or easier. I'd been writing personal essays. I'd learned to put myself on the page, to be, be present on the page, which I was really shy about before. Yeah. Um, that was a lo- big learning curve for me. Memoir is, it's a weird art. Um, and it's like, it's, it, you know, like those dreams when you don't have pants on, Yeah. it's just like real life when you're a memoir. Yeah. And, and I'm also a very reluctant memoirist in the sense that, um, it's not that I don't find myself interesting, but I'm more interested in things outside of myself. Um, and so as you have already pointed out, there's only about, uh, a quarter of the book that's based on my memories. Yeah. It's still classified as a memoir because it, because it has a first-person narrator. Yeah. Um, but it's more. I'm more interested in the research aspect of it. There's a lot of San Francisco history, yes. and um, and a lot of. I had I had to really. Um, the heart of it for me is in the AIDS crisis, and yeah. uh, that's the heart of the story for me. And I had to find that to drive my interest in writing it. So it had to have a reason to be that's external to me yeah. um, that makes it an important story to tell to justify to myself right. <laughs> being a first-person narrator through this whole thing. So I, I'm not... I, I, I enjoy reading memoirs, but I, I do also have to admit that sometimes with memoir, it, it can be a little navel-gazing. Oh, yeah. And I don't masturbatory. Oh, please! Yeah. I just don't yeah. like that kind of book. Um, <laughs> and despite all of the masturbation in your book, yours is not. <laughs> it's not that way. <laughs> I mean, you have you have a reason for telling your story right. that is external to yourself. Oh yeah. yeah. So yes, I mean, I should say that. I'm like, yes, yes, Alia. <laughs> You have to have a reason to talk about the masturbating. Um, but so for, so for me, it was really important to find the heart there. Yeah. And um, for me, what, uh, what really resurrected this book was, uh, I guess I picked it up right around when California passed um, recreational use uh-huh. uh, of marijuana. Yeah. And what I, I immediately felt frustrated and saw missing from that narrative was the 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 AIDS crisis which is which we have to thank for recreational access now and nobody wants to talk about that and nobody wants to remember how hard it was to make those first strides um, towards towards Prop 215 the initial the first medical marijuana initiative in the country so and your and your mom had a part in helping uh, the AIDS patients out. I mean, there were people suffering from AIDS to with her with get, getting the marijuana essentially back when it was 
still a, what do they call it, a schedule one drug, which is just ridiculous? It still is a schedule one drug, oh, by the way. Yeah, right. It still is a schedule one drug. But, um, but now um, 11 states have recreational use, and then it's like another, I don't want to misspeak here, but it's I think another 34, I think it's 34 or 35 states that have uh, fairly broad medical yeah. access. And it's all but two states now have some form of medical access. And all of this is going directly in the face of the federal government's uh, rigid right. Schedule One classification. So it's all illegal in the eyes of the feds. Right. Oh, interesting. But the states, so the states are act have act been actively working against the federal government on this point since uh, 19, well, 96 was when Dennis Perone got Prop 215 through. Um, but yeah, my mom, my mom had a hand in that. Um, she was, so, so my folks had the first high volume, uh, cannabis food business in California, uh, certainly of its size. They were doing uh, 10,000 brownies a month in the seventies and it was a, di it was a delivery based system. And so there was this whole network, um, there was this whole underground network that really reached throughout the city. So it was very natural when AIDS hit and people started getting sick and really needing anti-emetic drugs and needing appetite enhancers and needing painkillers and needing sleep aids um, and also res often responding poorly to the more toxic pharmaceutical options. Um, it was very natural for that extant network to transition into a, a supply system for medical marijuana. Yeah. So while my mom was never uh, high profile like Dennis Perone or Brownie Mary, uh, who were her contemporaries and colleagues and co-collaborators, um, she kept a low profile, but she kept doing the work. And the work in, in her case was getting weed, which was becoming medicine, into bodies. Um, and there's something I love the cover photo of your mom with the cash and it freaks me out I mean because I, I, I know her now but, but but to see that photo of her I'm like for a second I thought it was you it was crazy people keep telling me that I hear yeah um, so thank you I, I, I am glad that I look like my mom did at that time uh, she's a beautiful woman and um <laughs> but it's funny because people think it's me. And the other thing that I hear is people thinking that it's not a real photograph. How did you, like, how did you get, how did you take that picture? Or, or as if it's somehow shopped or posed or something. But no, it's just a family picture of my mom with a wad of cash driving up to Humboldt to get get some weeds and put in her brownies. And what I this I mean, it's it's probably going to feel weirder and weirder as it gets closer to release. But it's essentially it's a family. Your mom and dad are on the cover of your book, and I and I really think this book is going to be big. I, I, I I'm not to put any pressure on you, but I think it just it hits on so many different levels. So, but what what's it just like to have mom and dad on a book that you wrote that is going to take the literary world by storm? <laughs> First of all, thank you, Tony. I hope you're right. Second of all, that's not my dad. What? That's not my dad. Everybody does. It's oh, not my dad. Okay. It's one of his. So my dad is a graduate of the Berkeley Psychic yeah. Institute. 
And the man on the cover was one of his uh, cohorts, um, uh, one of his cohort from the Berkeley Psychic Institute. So he is a fellow psychic who was a friend of my dad. It's likely that my dad was taking the picture. Okay. Oh, interesting. So... so now the Psychic Institute with your dad. Yes. So now we got to go there. So so what is it about the Psychic Institute? What what uh, does does your dad does he do like mentalism? Is he is he uh, what what's what's the uh, practice? Um, my dad does aura readings. Um, oh, I love that. I always everyone I love to have my aura read. And like when <laughs> people tell me like what colors going on around me and stuff. Yes, and and he will cleanse your chakras. Um, He will kind of go into your body and brain and find impurities or um, dysfunction or and um, try to psychically unhook those and clean it out. I don't. I have. Very mixed feelings about this yeah, stuff. Yeah. So, because yeah, it, I'm not yeah like it's I was good, that was my next that was my yeah. next question was how how do you feel about that um, in your belief system? Oh, um, medium, I guess. I feel so bad. you're a medium. Oh no, God no. So I have to I I have to tell you, Tony. I come from a long line of psychics it's actually not just my mom and my dad uh my grandmother also uh did quite a lot of psychic stuff and ran a paranormal society for some time my great grandmother uh was a medium who actually married a ghost really really (laughs) really in in some sense of really, yeah. yes, really, really, as far as her belief system, for sure. Right, right. And now, now, I'm sorry. When when you, when you marry a ghost, yeah. do, you, do you get half when you divorce? <laughs> I don't know if she could shake him. Um, yeah, yeah. But but they stayed together. Uh, so you know, I I don't I don't. I guess it's a moot question. Uh, They've remained uh, blissfully married for 35 years until her death at 104. Wow. So the the point we got to take away from that is if you marry a ghost, longevity is in your future. Well, for one thing, the arguments are fairly (laughs) one-sided. It's kind of the perfect husband in a way. No, dig it. She She could not hear him or see him. But she could feel his touch, and the sex was great. But yeah, <laughs> I, 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 we're, Your face, I'm just. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, oh. <laughs> How do we all get one? I know. <laughs> I know. Right, right. Um, it's called an incubus. <laughs> yeah. Or for in your case, Tony, it might be a succubus. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, that's, that that was the name of the bus I used to drive in Fairfield. Oh. Uh, can we get your disgusted sounding? Uh, exactly. <laughs> um, oh, that's so intriguing. The um, so it's, it's just it's so interesting because here's where here's my thing is I have not I know nothing I've known nothing about psychics they were demons to me oh, yeah. and so everything is all of this like new thought and stuff is kind of new where I'm like oh I read Alan Watts I I read all of this stuff. 
and it's all just brand new to me. And, you know, some of it I take with a grain of salt and some of it I'm going, okay, maybe there is something there. It's I'm kind of an open book to the, I can join another cult now. I just don't know which one. Imagine how I feel reading about the Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> you're, you're, you're ready to join? <laughs> oh, well, I do find it rather exciting and bizarre. Um, no, but when you, when you grow up in a family that's as, as eccentric as mine, um, normal to everybody else is weird to me. So, um, you know, uh, every, I think every family has its own culture. Every family has its own version of crazy. Um, and every family has its own version of sane. And, and everything, everything else is outside of that. So, um, and you, and you're always going to, uh, reference the things you meet to the culture against the culture that you grew up in. Um, so as, as wackadoo as my family may sound and as wacky as my family truly is, uh, I am completely weirded out by suburbia. So, uh, and you know, judgments aside it's just a world that is exotic and strange to me Um, so I had uh, growing up um, I had a lot of difficulty with that especially when I tried to integrate into public school and um, came up against the straight world myself Uh, because my frame of reference was just so different and um, plus I had I, I was a kid who liked to hang around adults, and um, so in my case, these were my mom's customers, and um, and these were uh, wildly creative and exciting people. Um, she was very hooked into the LGBTQ community, always the 70s and throughout the 80s, and so this was kind of like, this was my framework. And then I and then I go to a a public elementary school, and kids are you know being raised within much more conservative families and parents you know two fam or parents who get up and go to work in the morning and uh, have expectations that their children are going to grow up to be whatever a doctor an accountant I don't know what I don't know what other parents my my mom wanted me to be a stand up comic. Oh my God! Really? Now, 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 what was? Why did she want that? I'm sure it was because you're funny. You, you, you expressed some funny when you were young. It must be because stand-up comics are so happy and successful. <laughs> They're the most depressing people. I mean, I did stand-up for a little bit, and you know, I'm a pretty depressing guy, and I even got out of it because I was it was bringing me down too much. I still loved learning it though. She just wanted the best for me. She just wanted me to be happy. Um, no. Uh, well, and also that San Francisco back at a time when when comedy was just thriving. It was Holy City Zoo. The um, the uh, you know Robin Williams is around. Every, every everything is happening in San Francisco. So and it's almost like like back then it was like get into comedy. Now it's like get into tech. But back then it was it was comedy. Yeah, I mean, Robin got his start on Fisherman's Wharf, uh, which is where my mom got her start. Um, and it was approximately the same time. Um, and a lot of big comics started on the wharf doing street performance. Penn, Penn and Teller and uh, Harry Anderson, who just died, he was. I, I interviewed him for the book, uh, actually. Oh, wow. um, he kind of came in and out. But there was a really vibrant performance scene on the wharf and and those were my mom's first customers 
um, we're the, the, the tap dancers and jugglers and comedians and um, I don't know odd, odd characters who were performing on the street what, what was it like when um, people I mean did Robin Williams and people like that come in and out of your life at certain points um, I didn't know Robin though my, my husband knew Robin um, but uh, there were there were certainly there were certainly some there were some comedians and there were a lot of performers and uh, I, I knew Sylvester um, from the time that I was a baby until he died and in 88 he was a customer the whole time and, and I, I loved going to his house that was I have just really sweet memories from it it was such an to me an exotic place and he had the first pool table I, I had ever seen and, and kind of been allowed to play on um, and uh, and it was just really sensuous a lot of velvets and, and, and beads and um, there was always a scene uh, so I don't know. I had I had ways of of relating to people who were from a very different social, well, a very different age, yeah. and obviously a different social scene from me as a child. Right. But um, somehow I I felt like that was where I belonged, oh. and it was very difficult for me to relate to kids my own age. Yeah. Uh, and then what complicated this quite a bit um, further is that I knew that I couldn't talk about it right any of it which is interesting because there is a stigma to it and I relate to that because I, I didn't want to talk about the Jehovah's Witnesses and you didn't want to talk about mom being a you know selling pot so there's there's secrets and and the secrets are hard for kids really hard yeah that's true I it's funny because I don't actually recall um, I don't actually recall my parents telling me about are the illegal business but I always knew it's yeah. something it's like it feels like it came into me with mama's milk I always knew that we were outlaws yeah. and early on it was something that like my mom had this kind of cool attitude about it that um, we were outlaws because outlaws were cooler and, um, and and it always felt like a cool world you know we'd walk in uh, to a business or to someone's house or and and uh, to do a deal and people were always happy to see us right. <laughs> I mean who doesn't like their weed dealer yeah. right so um, it it was something that um, felt positive and exciting to me as a kid as a little kid but I also knew from a really early age that I that I had to protect the secret or my parents would go to prison yeah. it was like very clear that this was the consequence of telling anybody uh, another kid or an adult or whoever so you look you always had to protect your folks and um, it just meant that there was the things that were most important to me were things that I couldn't talk about and I never did I never told not as a five-year-old not as a 10-year-old not not as a 15-year-old you know I never told anybody so, so as, as you're going through school and kind of more integrating with the kids, in high school, did you ever, I mean, was there a point where you ever kind of really felt like you fit in or was did you always feel other? Yeah, I wouldn't say that I ever integrated. Um, I didn't. I was, I was very much of a misfit and um, a very unpopular kid. And um, 
it was something I really struggled with. I was just, I was super awkward. I was yeah. a super awkward kid. And then I couldn't, I couldn't talk about what was really going on. Right. And, and I don't know if I overcompensated by being an asshole or what, but I did not have friends. Yeah. Um, and then about high school, I don't know, sophomore year of high school, I made, I, I made a really good friend whose mom also dealt pot. And um, so when you met her and you guys got along, did you did you know about each other's pot moms or do you think there was just a vibe there that you both picked up on? I'm trying to remember. We were introduced because of our names. Um, so I'm I'm Alia and her name is Aria and it's spelled the same, but with an R like an opera aria. And so we were introduced because of that, and I was at that point um, open about smoking weed. Okay. Um, that was oh, you must have been so cool in high school to be a weed smoker. I wasn't that cool. Um, I wasn't that cool, but there were a contingent of stoners. Yeah. And, um, and actually, I remember um, that there, there, was a, there was a girl who I, who I kind of looked up to, who I thought was really cool she was just sort of she was a tomboy but she was also really pretty and everybody liked her and um and she was kind of a stoner and um and I remember I had really bad hay fever which I still and always do and so I had really puffy red eyes and she turned around in her chair and said dude are you stoned and I said yes but I wasn't I completely lied um and she's and she said, "I'm gonna call you Stony from now on." And it was like the first it was the first nickname I had ever had that wasn't intended to be cruel. Oh my God. And I just I just went with it. And so I kind of I didn't tell people that my mom dealt, but I I always had weed because yeah. I could just get it from my mom. Yeah, yeah. And um, so I was able to get other kids stoned. And Aria always had weed because she could get it from her mom. Yeah. And so some I don't know. How it came out, she must have told me first because I wouldn't have told anyone. Um, but I think once she told me that her mom dealt, I told her that mine did too. Yeah. What was so? So you got Stony. What were what were some of the bad nicknames that you had early on? <laughs> I, I'm not being cagey, but I can't think. I can't remember okay. any right now. Right. I mean, I'm not. <clears throat> no, no, you blocked it out because. We do have to block thi- we do have to block things and have denial over certain parts of our lives so we can function. Yeah. So I totally get that. <laughs> I I mean, I didn't have so I didn't have any that really stuck like a nickname that okay, really stuck. Okay. Um I I've, I've been called all kinds of shit, but I can I mean there wasn't like one and and part of that is because my name does not rhyme with anything. Oh my god. I mean, there was Alien, which kind of came and went, but it's right. not that great of yeah. an. Yeah, I mean, and um, and I remember I would occasionally get called Alia Falia, okay, which but that doesn't mean it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. It was just it would keep sort of it popped up over the years <laughs> again and again because people are so creative. Yeah, yeah. Um, I got I got Tony Douchebag. Tony Douchebag. <laughs> yes. When your last name's Duchesne, you get douchebag. Yes, you were made for it. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm kind of a cleaner down there. Oh. Ooh. Yeah, that was, uh, I, I don't know if that was good or bad. Um, Way to turn it around. Way to turn it around. <laughs> you got to claim it. I mean, you just, 
eventually you have to you have to claim being an outcast you have to claim being a yes. misfit and that i mean that was when i found my legs so to speak right. and when i found my legs socially is when i was just like fuck it i'm a punk yeah. you know and then you're then you're it's like some kind of punk goth yeah. whatever and you and you just and you just go with it and start slathering on the makeup yeah. and being as weird as you can and and dressing funky and being loud and that at least that was the way that i went yeah. was to be as as um as obnoxious as i could yeah. um did you did you go see bands when you were a kid in san francisco were you like in kind of in that crew or at that by then we were in sebastopol which oh, is about yeah. an hour north of San Francisco. So, yes, we had the Phoenix, which nice. is a great punk rock. Yeah. Uh, it was an old theater. I don't yeah. think it's open anymore. And you could sneak up to the roof and pound 40s and all kinds of all kinds of punk and metal bands would come through. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and yeah, it was an all-ages venue, so it was great. Yeah. Uh, Any standout bands that you saw and you're just like, <laughs> look at me. You're like, oh, I Tony... You didn't tell me to do homework and research. <laughs> no, I just, I just am not that cool. I mean, um, Primus played five hundred thousand times, and um, and I saw Primus five hundred thousand times because they used to play the Omni in Oakland, and they would play in San Jose, and I saw that, and I was just, I knew they had the Say Baby song, and I used to call it the Say Baby song because okay. I didn't know what Tommy, I didn't know the na- the title was of the song. That was a great song. Yeah. Tommy the race car driver. I don't know if that's what it's called. Tommy the cat. Yeah, yeah. The race car driver was a different one. And then when they recorded it, Tom Waits did the lyrics, but I had never heard it that way. We and then when I got to KFJC, we had the old demo of the original um, where Les Claypool sang the whole song. So that yeah. But I I was a huge like Primus fan, and I would show up at all the Red Hot Chili Peppers shows when they played the Fillmore. Were you there too? Um, I've seen them. Yeah. <laughs> no, but um, but you know all those kind of all those like nineties nineties yeah. alterno bands. Kind of embarrassing to admit now. Or you're just kind of like, but actually it was just there were there were. I'd rather not talk about it, Tony. <laughs> we'll cut we'll cut the embarrassing part out of the interview. Again, now about the relationship with your mother. <laughs> the easy stuff. Yeah, yeah, I mean, as you know, as writers, we do have to go to the dark places, even if it doesn't seem like we're going to dark places. So it may seem like you're doing a fluffy narrative, but at the same time, it, you got to go, you got to scratch a lot of wounds to get the narrative across. Anyway, and your mom, I love your mom. I've, and she's a fantastic artist. How does she feel about the book? Oh, um, she's, uh, she's excited about it. Um, she's a little bit nervous. She works with kids okay. these days. So she teaches art to, uh, mostly to kids in, um, halfway houses. She teaches at Juvie Hall yeah. and she also goes into some schools and she's down in the Palm Springs area, which is quite a bit more conservative than up here. And so she is understandably concerned about, um, how this might affect her yeah have you been working with her on her resume (laughs) she doesn't need my help with her resume um but you know at at the end of the at the end of the day she's she loves the book and um and she's very excited about it and my my dad loves the book i mean the family's on on board um uh, not everyone has read it yet, so <laughs> there there will be more reactions from family. But 
And it'll get intense too because not only family, there's going to be reactions in magazines, there's going to be reactions in newspapers. How are you getting ready for that? I am not thinking about it. Um. <laughs> about what? What did I just say? I don't even know what I'm talking about. You asked me how I'm getting ready for um, for reactions in magazines. No. Um. Well, you're already getting some uh, uh, like most anticipated memoirs of 2020. Um, a little bit. I, you know, hopefully that hopefully that keeps building. I, I do think it's. I do think it's a timely book, and, and I, I, I think that um, people will be interested to, uh, I hope so anyway. Um, I know, I, I think like, I know that people are going to have questions about um, my, mo- my mother's parenting choices. Um, and uh, I guess like the, the family side of it and the judgmental side of it. I'm not super looking forward to. I did already have one person. Um, oh, I probably shouldn't say this, but my mother-in-law read it and and she she called and she's like, "I am so sorry you went through that." And I thought, "What are you talking about?" I mean, yes, there are hard things right. in the book, but we all go through difficult things in our childhood yeah. and most of us at least in our generation gen x come from broken homes and she had a she raised her children in a broken home as well so i just thought i mean there was my my trauma is fairly mild it's not a trauma memoir yeah and and so i guess um i feel like i'm going to have to sort of fend off a lot of questions and comments about the trauma that I don't think is particularly significant and certainly isn't the point of the book. Um, So what's it like to, um, to be a daughter in that traumatic situation? It. (laughs) (laughs) I was about to answer and then I'm like, you asshole. Yeah. I just, I just had to try to (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to get that in there, no, I think. Well, in the end, I mean, what you have is you have a very, you have such a strong, great pulled together story. Stand on the mountain with your flag held high, and whatever happens to how they react, let them react. Thank you. Um, one of, I mean, one of the reasons that I wanted to do this book is um, is kind of in response to um, the trauma memoirs that are sort of that are centered around oh I was I was raised by hippies and neglected or I was raised by hippies and and um, and molested or I was raised by hippies and which which these things happen to people and um, and I'm in no way diminishing that trauma however uh, it's not the only narrative that came out of those families yeah. And so I feel like it's important to acknowledge also that some very creative, weird, alternative, um, make it up as you go along parenting uh, resulted in, well, I don't know if you want to call me balanced, but resulted in some, some uh, very together people. Um, so I, I, I don't feel that I was abused. I don't feel that I was neglected and or mistreated by my family. Um, I certainly was not ignored. I was just, I, you know, my mom, 
my mom uh, just took me with her on deals, which is an entirely different kind of parenting question. But um, but I, I had all of the attention that I needed and all of the food I needed and all of the shelter I needed. So, um, so you know, I read Glass Castle, um, or I read a lot of it, and um, and I felt very frustrated by that by that narrative uh, personally. So uh, I do I do want to offer an alternative to that because I also don't think um, I also don't think that the standard American model of raising children is necessary necessarily producing balanced, confident, caring people. So I think that. I, I, I would hope that people continue to look for alter, look at alternative models of parenting right. uh, and not be somehow scared out of it. Now, the 60s and the 70s also produced some very, very strange parenting choices, yeah. and my parents made some of those, and maybe, the, maybe they weren't all good decisions. But, um, but, yeah, show me the parent who made all good decisions. I, I don't think any parent has – I mean, none of us get out um, – you know, with with a with a A plus, yeah. you know, as as kids with our parents, and then the parents trying to do their best, and at the same time, I mean, your mom, what? It's not like your mom was like dealing crack and bringing you into crack houses. She was she was dealing with the the, the social circle was probably healthier than a church than going to church uh, on Sundays. It, it, you were you were. You were seeing a, a lot of kind of really great people. You know, there was more, more positivity. I would almost think. I don't know. Maybe I'm pushing my, maybe I'm pushing what I wished I had through your through your narrative. But well, at the end of the day, um, weed culture is um, is very wholesome. I, 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 you're absolutely right. Um, and there were other drugs around, and there were some strange experiences and. You know, so there are some el- traumatic elements of, of my childhood, as in anybody's childhood. Um, but I, I, ultimately, what you're saying is is true that the people, you know, I was in environments that almost anyone would look at and say, "Okay, that's probably not child appropriate." However, I was I was surrounded by people who were ultimately caring, creative, um, kind people who would who would not have harmed or endangered me in any way Um, so I don't I don't resent that at all and in fact I mean my mom and I are extremely close and always were she's always supported me to do anything that that interested me creatively intellectually Um, she's a tremendously supportive parent Um, she hasn't always had uh, the traditional means that other parents do. I don't come from money. Right. Um, to, you know, uh, she wasn't she wasn't a rich dealer. <laughs> right, you know? right. um, so I there were some advan- some advantages that I did not grow up with. Right. Um, but yeah, I was I was very much supported yeah. in that household. So um, I, I think she was a great parent. Yeah. Um, my dad was a little more complicated. Yeah. And, uh, and then, you know, you look at the other people that are supposed to go through the traditional American way of getting their degrees and then getting the house and the 2.5 kids and the picket fence. Right. And do they have good stories to tell that we even give a shit about? 
they might. I don't know. But they're not. But they're. But they. But I don't think they're crunching at it as as someone who has an environment that fed creativity. I mean, I'm not. I'm not here to. Um, I'm not judge to, them. Yeah, I'm not here to judge the squares, but. <laughs> well, okay. So, um, what what happens when you turn in the final draft of your book? What was it like when you hit send? Oh God, which time? <laughs> <laughs> the worst time. Give me the give me the worst time, for the sake of story. Oh man, you know, I was I was surprised. There were so many things in the publishing process that came as a surprise to me. Um, so I sold I sold my book. You had asked how much I had written. I don't know if I ever answered that. But when I sold my book, it was based on a proposal and one chapter. I did have more chapters. I had, at that point, like six or seven that were in some kind of presentable shape. The book is ultimately 23 chapters, so it was quite a bit of work left to do. Uh, I had a lot more of the research done than than I had written. Um, And at the time that I sold it, that was May. I had a one-year deadline. So if you think about it, t- it took me ten years to get to. Took me ten years to get that proposal in one chapter done, you know, or five chapters done, and then one year to write the entire rest of the book. Um, it is it is easier once you have a proposal because you have to outline your chapters before you do your proposal. You have to know where you're going, um, but also just the the sheer terror of failure um, was a huge motivator. <laughs> a motivator when you were writing or be- or before you were sending it in, or both? Uh, when I was writing. Uh, I mean, when it, once it sold, I, I had a one-year deadline. And, um, and, what, and what do you do? Like, now you have the deadline. Now, what, you know, first pop the champagne, next, where's the coffee? Exactly. Um, I was very fortunate in that I did well enough on my advance that I was able to back off of the day job, yeah. which is a luxury that many people don't have. So I was extremely fortunate um, in that sense. And I, I went to work full time, um, but more than full time. Yeah. It was a lot of 12 and 16 hour days. Um and so what happened, so I, I, I finished a draft and I made the mistake of posting on social media <laughs> that I'd finished a draft uh-huh. and I got an email from my editor. Great, I'd love to see it in two weeks, uh-huh. you know, or three weeks or whatever she was asking for. And, um, and now when I posted on social media that I had finished a draft, I've, I meant like I had vomited right. up to the point that I wrote the end. Yeah. You know, it was slop. Yeah. So um, that started the first cycle of 16-hour days, seven days a week. And just just going, you know, I did like three weeks of that. And then so I, you press send and then you just collapse. Yeah. You know, and I would spend like two or three days feeling like I'd been in a car accident and just physically battered. You know, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. What what I I've had to do that a few times in my life, and I I never I never have Doritos, and I I don't drink Diet Coke, but <laughs> if I'm doing 16 hour days, seven days a week on writing, 
It's Doritos and Diet Coke, and that's like the only thing that gets me through to keep me pounding out the drafts. I have no idea why. This is not a commercial for those shit things to put in your body. Did any? Did you have any like rituals or anything that? I mean, did you like? I, I know somebody who started smoking. She started. She just like smoked through the whole process of one of her novels. I I love smoking when I write, but I I got off that crack, and it yeah. and it was hard enough to get off of. After all, you know, I started when I was a teenager, and if I'm like seven years off of it, and I'm not about to start again, but um, anything, absolutely anything my heart desires. Um, And also a lot of like 1 a.m., 2 a.m. baths. Oh, okay. um, Because. Well, and physically, um, you know, the repetitive stress symptoms kick in, and it's just. you don't realize until you're putting in those kind of hours just how physically abusive desk work is, but it, yeah. it really is. And I have a standing desk. I ended up getting a treadmill desk, uh-huh. uh, which was recommended to me by another author. Yeah. Um, and that was really helpful because you can sort of walk while you type. Uh-huh. And just having some motion is, it helps with the, it helps the physical symptoms, the repetitive stress stuff. Um, I don't. I don't. Oddly enough, um, really use weed very much. It's uh-huh. not. It's not my thing. Um, but I did get into THC bath salts. Oh really? Yes. Um, and in those one and two a.m. baths. Uh, yeah. And so, but after that first one, then the, then I'd have like it kept going in cycles. So I'd have this really heavy deadline, yeah. send it in, and then have like three weeks of trying to get my body back in shape yeah, yeah. and then the next deadline comes and it's 12 and 16 hour days again yeah. until that one goes in and then and um, I, I think I didn't realize that it would be like that the whiplash of it was really intense I kept feeling like a boxer you know yeah. going into the corner to get squirted with yeah. water and smelling salts and yeah. you just try and get a couple massages and like get yourself back into fighting form so that you can go back to your desk. Yeah, there's, I mean, I've had advice from, you know, authors and directors that are just like, make sure you do that 20 minutes of exercise in the morning. You're about to go to boot camp and you just got to keep your blood flowing when you're on those long days. Yeah, that is, that is absolutely true. Now there's a lot, there's a lot of physical strain and the mental strain I never quite figured out what to do with. Yeah. Um, oh, push it down and take it out on someone else. I drink. <laughs> Alia, thanks for so much, so much for coming on the show. Oh, <laughs> on that note. I know. <laughs> Thank you, Tony. Alia Volts on Drinks with Tony. Check out her book, Home Baked, My Mom, Marijuana, and the Stoning of San Francisco. Hey, come back next week when my guest is Beth Lissick when we discuss her debut novel, Edie on the Green Screen. Thanks for listening and check out TonyDuchesne.com if you'd like book coaching and I'll see you next week.